non brunni, sono scimmica. C'è qualcuno là fuori? C'è qualcuno là fuori? Benvenuti al Christian Podcast. My friends, my name is Beto Gudino. Welcome to Christian Podcast episode I don't even know, but we're broadcasting from one of our favorite places in the whole world, whose owner is the neighbor of the guest I'm about to introduce to you, Moon Goat Coffee Roasters in Costa Mesa, California. All right, welcome to the show. I'm Beto Gudino. I bring you weekly God Thinkers to talk about matters of faith, Christianity, and culture. And we go from blasphemous to divine. And today's topic is why do pastors go to Israel? And we have an expert in going to Israel today. <laughs> uh, I go that far, but I love Israel. Eric, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing really well, and I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. Well, my friends, this is uh, this these episodes are meant to be refreshers for me personally, but also I think for the listener. I think I wanna I wanna be not too much in the academic, not too much in the head knowledge, and a little bit more of the experiential and fun and getting to know a friend. So. Eric, I've been getting to know you in the last few years. You are my first ever Christian podcast episode, which is it. amazing. I started with you, you're my number one episode. And we started during the pandemic. We were actually, you know, the, the audio was cutting in and out. It was fun. Uh, but no, thank you so much for being a part of this journey for me. And you're a pastor here in the community. Would you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I uh, have grown up here in Costa Mesa. I've lived here my entire life. I was raised in the church, and so the Bible is something that I'm really kind of been steeped in as a kid. Um, but there's this element of reading it on a page that it just kind of feels a little bit like, you know, it, it doesn't come alive. It doesn't pop off the page as much. Um, and so... Man, I feel like I'm already diving in. I can't wait to get to Israel, so I'm not even talking about myself. Yeah. Uh, but I get to be a pastor here in Costa Mesa at a church called Lighthouse Community. I get to um, do life with a whole bunch of other pastors. One of my favorite things about our city in particular is that although there might be like 60 different churches here, we're all recognizing that there's only one church, and Jesus is the head of all of us. And so we get to do life together. I get to do life with Betho. I get to do life with Mike Decker. I get to do life with Dave Gunlock and so many other pastors here. And that's my favorite part about this city. It's not the weather. It's not the beaches close. It's not that you can go skiing in the morning and surfing in the afternoon. It's that we are serving Jesus together. We're not in competition, and Jesus gets the glory. Wow, well said, my friend, and this is so fun. We just went on a tour of the city together mm -hmm. with many pastors of the of the city of Costa Mesa, and it was a first for me because I'm not necessarily, I mean, I'm at Palm Harvest here in Costa Mesa, mm -hmm. and I'm a pastor in a sense, but we have a lead pastor, and he said, you know, I want you to go and experience this. I don't want to be the guy uh, that gets to go. So he gave me the opportunity, and it was amazing getting to you know, see a lot of the pastors I already know. But uh, it almost felt like like an outing in school, you know, because we're in a bus and people are totally. making jokes and <laughs> no, people being silly and whatnot. But it was so fun to see pastors coming together and having one goal, to see the, the seek the prosperity of the city yeah. together. So I was amazing, man. Okay, so that's a little bit of who you are. Yeah. You're here in Costa Mesa. You're a pastor of Lighthouse. And the question today is, even as I think of you know, our own lead pastor mm -hmm. at Palm Harvest, Pastor Mike, he, I don't know if he's like the, 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 the lead person on this, but I remember a few years back, he was kind of like 
you know, inviting people in the community to go to Israel and experience you know, Israel in a tour and get to know like all these places throughout Israel. Yep. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. How did that invitation come about for you and what was your role in that and okay. why did you go? Well, you know, this last, back in 2019 when we went, that was my second trip. Um, and it was three different pastors, myself, Mike Decker, and then Rick Olson, who Rick lived in uh, Israel for a time. Um, so he is kind of the person that puts it together. He and Mike had been on a number of tours themselves. This was the first time I got to go with other pastors. And it was so fun to get to go with some of my brothers, um, with, with multiple churches together. I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. And it was really fun. The first time I went was back in 2010, and it was right before my second born was born. So I, I had a heart to go and experience it because for me, you know, growing up in the church, growing up reading the Bible, you look at the, you look at the pages and you go, okay, th this is interesting, but you have no concept for where these things are taking place. Uh, and so I wanted to see firsthand for myself what it was like. So I actually called up my buddy Rick, who I knew had been on a bunch of these trips. He had recently come back from one. And I said, hey, if I were to go there with a couple of other friends, where would you suggest? And he, we sat down for coffee similar to like what we're doing right now. And he kind of mapped out uh, a route for us to take. And so my, myself and two other friends uh, flew over there maybe two months before my son was born. We were hoping that my wife wasn't going to go into labor prematurely. Uh, flew over there and we got to just kind of have this experience of the entire country. But as somebody who didn't have a lot of familiarity with it, I felt like I was kind of skipping over the surface of it. I, I would go into places and I would see something and I go, I know this is meaningful, but I don't understand the meaning. So this time, when uh, I just kind of felt like, you know, not only do I want to experience it, but I've got people in my church who have been following Jesus for decades. And I know that they have a desire to see the pages of Scripture come alive. How can I give that a, them that experience? Because I certainly don't feel capable of putting together a trip that would be worth them going over there. Like, I, I'm not the guy who's going to lead that. So I called Rick up. I said, hey, Rick. I'm kind of thinking like I'd like to take some people to Israel. What do you think? He goes, that's so funny. I was actually planning on meeting with my tour guide director, the person that helps us plan these things today. Are you available for lunch? So it felt like wow. one of those real wow. uh, kind of like Kairos moments where the Holy Spirit prompted something on my heart. It was, he was prompting already uh, Rick to do that. And then Mike was also the third pastor in that where he was just saying, hey, I want to take some people as well. So the three of us got to bring about 50 people over to Israel, and that's a lot of people for a tour. So it, I went from going the first time with three people to 50 people, and it was, it was a totally different experience. Wow, that's so cool. Um, so as I'm thinking, you know, I've never been to Israel, and I can only imagine, but I guess my first question is, tell me a little bit about the geography of Israel, because you're even saying, you know, we, we kind of did a tour and, and you knew that some places were meaningful, but not necessarily like, why is it meaningful? Um, so tell me about that geography and, and the pl like what places are meaningful in Israel? Like, okay. what does it look like sure. geographically? Yeah. So the first thing that I didn't know this until I was over there is that Israel and California, where we live, are very similar climates. So, for instance, this last time that we went, it was a super bloom here. It was all of the mustard plants were glowing, you know, all the yellow flowers on the back oh, yeah, were going yeah. off. Same exact thing over there. So, whereas Israel is typically uh, a pretty arid place, it's, it's known as the desert. California is known as the desert. Um, and yet, there was a ton of greenery, which was a very unique situation because the person who was our guide for this tour... He was an archaeologist. He said, in my entire life, I've never seen Israel so green. So it was a really wonderful timing. Wow, that's so cool. Um, but you want to think of, there's two big bodies of water that kind of uh, take up Israel. You've got up the very top, uh, you've got where the River Jordan pours into the Sea of Galilee. And that's where most of the Gospels take place, is around the Sea of Galilee. So that's up at the top of Israel. And we spent a good portion of our time up there. 
And then if you head down about halfway down, we get to Jerusalem. And I mean, it's maybe, you know, it's there in the, about halfway is Jerusalem. And that's the other epicenter of most of the stories that we read about, particularly in the New Testament. Just off to the right is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is where the Jordan River has gone now through the Sea of Galilee. It's poured into it, but the Dead Sea has no tributaries. Nothing nothing is pouring out of the Dead Sea, so all of that water begins to evaporate, and the salt content is so toxic, nothing lives in it, which is why they call it the Dead Sea. Um, so we actually, on this trip, got to do the entire tour of Israel. We did, uh, we did the top, middle, and portion or a bottom portion, and we went down to the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea. We got to swim in all three of those seas, plus the Sea of Galilee. So we had four total bodies of water we got to swim in and experience. Each of them is, is significant in different ways in the Bible. Each of them, when you're there, you begin to think of stories. And I'll, I'll just give you an example of one, because probably the most, like, aha moment I had in my first trip was when I went up to the very top of Israel where the Jordan River comes out, and it's a place called Caesarea. And when you get there, you see just a big cave and water pouring out of that cave. And along that area are a bunch of niches where uh, idols used to reside. And this was a place where they had built a big temple to Pan. And this cave was what they used to call the gates of hell. The gates of hell, they believed, was where they could, make, they, they could commune with and interact with the dead. And so what they would do at this temple is they would sacrifice animals at this temple. They would throw it into the water. It would get sucked underneath because of the water kind of swirling. It would get sucked into this cavern. If the dead, the sacrifice came back, it meant it was rejected. If the sacrifice stayed underneath... It meant it was accepted. And so there was all of this pagan worship that at one point had taken place there. And then you start thinking about a, a story we read about all the time in Scripture. Jesus is standing right in front of that cave where a temple to Pan, a, a pagan god used to reside, called the Gates of Hell. And he says to Peter, he says, hey, who do people say I am? Peter says, well, wow. you, you, you are, they say you're the, the, you know, the Messiah, this or that. He goes, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you're the son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you speak correctly. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Oh, okay. So he's standing in front of a cave known around that area as the gates of hell saying, even wow. death and Hades, even, you know, all of the pagan theology, it cannot stand against the truth of that statement. I am the son of God. Wow. Uh, that's where the geographical mm -hmm. information yeah. can make scripture like way more relevant. Yeah. Right. Yep. Wow. That makes total sense. And I know I haven't been there, but. Just you mentioning, hey, this is the place that they used to call gates of hell. Yeah. And this is Jesus saying, you know, uh, the gates of hell won't Stay prevail. It. Yeah. it makes no, it makes way more sense. Wow. So that's a reason why pastors go to Israel. <laughs> so right. that scripture comes alive even for us. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, so I have, a, you know, I have these emojis and mm -hmm. one of them is skeptical. Okay. And I know a lot of people, even when I have some friends that when they hear Jesus, you know, when somebody mentions Jesus, um, for them, it's nothing other than not even history. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, that's fable or that's not even fable because fable is for, for animals, right? <laughs> But um, it's, uh, it's not true. You know, it's mm -hmm. just made up. Um, what, I mean, is there a, is there a historic connection by going to Israel to the historic Jesus. Did you experience anything like that where it was like, wow, uh, I don't know, for the people that are skeptical, is, uh, would it do anything for them to, hey, go to Israel? Are you going to experience or is it a matter of the heart? Yeah. So one of the things that you come rubbing up against when you go to Israel is <sighs> human beings are remarkable at creating Uh, myth. 
we do it naturally. We, we add our own layers onto it. So we have an experience and then somebody's emotions, somebody's perceptions kind of get layered on top of that. And all of a sudden what they would describe, the story they say is slightly different than what they really experienced. And you're going to rub up against that. I remember uh, in one of my, my times there, I went into a really beautiful chapel. It's probably the most famous kind of basilica on the planet because it's where Jesus uh, supposedly was crucified. And it was built over the supposed site where he was both crucified and then laid to rest. So it's called the Holy Sepulcher. And there's a bunch of different faith um, practices, you know, your Eastern Orthodox and your, you know, your Catholic and all these kind of things, they're all stuffed into the same building. They all have different parts of it. And it's tons of gold filigree and lanterns and stuff. And right when you walk in, there's this stone. And the stone is supposedly the slab of stone where they laid Jesus's body after they took him off the cross and where they began to bind him up to bury him. And I remember just the gobs of people that were surrounding this and they were kissing it and they were weeping over it and they were putting their hands on it and praying over it. And one lady I saw come out of the gift shop and she had a bag of uh, candles and she poured the candles out on this slab of stone and she began to roll it over as if it's going to pick up the blessing. And I found my heart just kind of, ah, this is, you know, getting, getting frustrated at the layers of religiousness and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then I looked over and there's the place where Jesus's body, this tomb where supposedly his body was laid. And it was almost like a Disneyland length line to just to get in there. And again, I'm just like, and I, and I, so you, you almost kind of want to try to rescue Jesus out of the amount of religious layers we put on it. But as I was there and as I was being incredibly judgmental, towards everybody that was in there, as if I wasn't a pilgrim who had come there to experience it myself. Wow, yeah. I saw this guy who was dressed, looked like Jesus. I mean, he had a robe on, he had no shoes on his feet, long hair. And I go, okay, so this guy now wants to, you know, wants to be Jesus, right? And again, arrogantly, and, and, and all of a sudden this guy comes up and he starts up a conversation and he starts telling me about himself. He told me that he was somebody who trusted God in everything. He was from a Franciscan order. He had taken a uh, a vow of poverty, and he simply went wherever the Holy Spirit told him to be. So he said, uh, last week I was in Brazil, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you're going to Israel, so go to the airport. He got to the airport. Somebody purchased him a ticket. He flew to Jerusalem. He was now in Jerusalem. I said, well, where are you staying tonight? He said, I'm staying at this monastery. Well, can I give you some money for food? He goes, no, I don't touch money. I don't, I don't ever touch money. God provides everything. Well, where are you going to eat tonight? I'm eating at this uh, convent. What? And, and in that moment, I felt like it, 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 I, was, I was at my most arrogantly judgmental of everybody I was around in that place. I was just disgusted by the, the amount of religious iconography. And I felt like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, see this one right here? This is my son. Don't for a moment think that your faith is greater than his faith. You may not understand me the way he does, but don't think for a moment that just because you, a, at that point, 30-something westernized American Christian who has grown up in a Christian home has a monopoly on the right answer because he knows me too. And, and many of the people in here know me in ways that you can't fathom. And I realized that I needed to, not only did we need to start digging underneath the patina of, you know, our our own kind of mythologizing of Jesus, the ways we've added onto it, but we also need to begin to dig away our own arrogance and our own expectation that we have a monopoly on the right answer of who Jesus is and how we can encounter him. And so... Israel is a really wonderful place where those two things come into conflict and through the friction, through the interaction. That was my phone on Bluetooth. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so, so just through being there, not only does some of the religiousness get worn away, but some of our own religious arrogance gets worn away. Both of those are important. Um, 
this last trip, I had a couple of moments similar to like how I experienced at Caesarea, where scripture came alive. I had multiple experiences. One of the most powerful ones for me, where I felt like I just experienced, like we we did, we were, right next to the Sea of Galilee is this massive granite mountain. Um, trying to remember what the name of it is. It is uh, Mount Hermon. It's It sits right next to the Sea of Galilee, overlooking it. So we got a chance to go up on top of Mount Hermon. And this is where um, Jesus and his disciples would have walked because you don't walk through the valleys because you, all of these mountains have lots of caves along the side of them. And that's where the thieves would reside because they could see out over the valley. And if they saw a band of people walking through the valley, they'd attack them, they'd have the high ground and all that. So Jesus and his disciples, whenever they were heading back down to Jerusalem, would take the high ground. They would walk up to the top of Mount Hermon and then along the spiny ridge back down towards Jerusalem. And so we got to be up there and you get this beautiful picture of the Sea of Galilee and you see over where Jesus was probably on a hillside having his conversation about, um, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount where he would have said at this point, you know, uh, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. And it, at the time that he was saying this, oh, wow. there were people who lived on the top of this mountain. So you would have seen lights perhaps from candles or, or, or lanterns in their windows. And so he may have been pointing them saying, you're a city on a hill. Don't let your light, you know... And so we're standing up there, and I go, that's cool. And then we began to journey down the mountain towards the Sea of Galilee. And again, I, I told you this last time, we were there during a super bloom, just like we had back in 2019 here. All of the hills were green. There was tons of yellow mustard seed everywhere. And I'm walking through hip-height mustard plants on both sides. And I remembered something that Jesus said to his disciples probably as he was walking that same path that I was walking. He said, guys, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain right there to go throw itself in the sea, and it will. I had all three of those things right there with me. I had the mustard surrounding me. I had the mountain that he probably pointed to, and I had the Sea of Galilee right in front of me. And you begin to realize that so much of Jesus' teaching, so many of the things that we memorize, were just along-the-way conversation stuff. He was he was pulling from the things that they saw right in front of him. That was powerful. Another incredibly powerful moment I had was when we went to Temple Mount. And Temple Mount is built on a big rock um, outcropping. It's built right over the top. And what we know as Western Wall or uh, the Wailing Wall is actually just the retaining wall that used to be the foundation for Herod's temple that was built on top of it. The temple's no longer there, but this is where Jesus went when he was pulled before um, Herod and Pilate and when he was ultimately uh, condemned to be crucified. And as we're in there, somebody on, on our tour pointed out that this rock, because there were all of these treated stones. They had been worked in a rock quarry and brought there, massive rocks that had been brought up onto this hill to build the retaining wall. But at one point, we got to the end of those rocks and to this old, green, you know, jagged rocks. And he said, this is the original foundation of the mountain. And the mountain that it is, he said the name of it, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but the mountain that it is, is the same mountain where Abraham brought his son Isaac to sacrifice. And remember way back in, in the Old Testament, the very first sacrifice where God says, bring me your son, your one and only son, to, to sacrifice to me. And he leads Isaac up there carrying the sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood himself up to this mountain where God was going to ask him to sacrifice his, the son of the promise. And when he was there, God said, don't... Don't lay a hand on him. He provides the ram as the sacrificial, you know, uh, thing. And, 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 and there's a moment of, it's a powerful moment in the Old Testament, in Genesis. Well, many, many thousands of years later, God would send his son, the son of the promise, the son that we had all been anticipating, humanity had been anticipating for a long time, to the same mountain where he would be sacrificed for our sins. There's beautiful layering of, of biblical truth that comes alive that you would, you would miss if you weren't there in person. So that's why I love going, because not only 
do I get to experience a different type of, of life? The, the scriptures that I spend so much time in, they come alive. And so when I get to teach, now I, have a, I can see in my mind the places that these things took place. Yeah. Is that for, um, for people that are theologians or, like, uh, or archaeologists? Like, well, I guess the question is, um, when we read the Bible and we see Jesus walking from town to town, is that reflective of the towns that are there now? I mean, are they still called the same? Is if it's no Cana, is it is it still there a Cana? Is, if it says Jerusalem, is it the same Jerusalem? Uh, is that accurate, or is there any uh, anything we need to be aware of when it comes to like the the geography of the Bible versus the geography of of Israel? Of modernity. Well, let's just remember that we live here in Costa Mesa, and Costa Mesa was incorporated back in the 1950s. So before that, this was known as Goat Hill, which is probably where they got Moon Goat. The goat ah. from the coffee shop that we reside in comes from, in part, a nod to what this town, before it was a town, was known as. Um, and so we are living in the midst of a place that has a huge history. I live in a house that resides right next door to a historical house that was where I'm living was all orange groves back before I was born. And the house right next to us was kind of the plantation home of those orange groves. And that's only in the last, what, 70 years that all of that, this has changed. You think of a place that has, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked those paths. 2,000 years of development and growth, uh, 2,000 years of wars and battles. And, and we have to remember that Jerusalem is without a doubt the most highly uh, fought over property of land. There have been so many wars fought over it, particularly between the Muslims, the Christians, the Catholics. And so there is layer upon layer upon layer of history taking place in the same spot. And so are, are some of those towns still there? Absolutely. But they've changed. Um, we can only, in some places, guess. We think that this might be where Jesus dragged his cross. We think that this is where they had the cross where he hung on. We think that this is where he might have been buried. But there's another place across town where it could also have taken place. We don't know for certain. And so, like I suggest, whenever we're reading Scripture, when we see these things, you need to hold them loosely. You need to come with a, a kind of a sense of humility. Um, Otherwise, I mean, we just kind of, we love to kind of pour in our arrogance and think that we know best and that what we think is the right thing. And sometimes we may be wrong. Uh, but there are certainly towns that existed in Jesus' day. Their names may have changed, like Goat Hill has now become Costa Mesa. There in Israel, one town, um, you know, we know, for instance, the Sea of Galilee is Galilee, but it's also there in their language known as Tiberias. And there's there's a, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, and there's a town called Tiberias, which was named after one of the Caesars. You know, so that's what the name holds. But this is a place where Jesus lived and walked. Um, not many of the historical things you'll see have been excavated because they were under layers upon layers of dirt. In fact, this last trip, and this is what I love when I go with Rick and when I go with Mike, when, I, when we go with one that's an organized tour, the beauty of that is you get to do things that you would not otherwise do if you just went on your own. This last time, the very first day we were there, we went to some caves. They were called the Caves of Adalam. And it's, they're caves that are just outside of the place where um, David fought Goliath. So you remember where that story was taking place? It's south of Jerusalem uh, towards the sea, uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of right down there for the map that you're looking at. Um, we were down there, and these caves were where people had lived until they were conquered as a people. And when they did that, what they would do is they, they would just leave their homes and all of their stuff, and they would have their home on top, but it's also a desert climate, so they would dig a deep cellar underneath, and they would often spend those really hot days underneath. Well, when they were conquered, people came through and they just destroyed their homes and they threw all of the stuff that was up top down into their cellar. Mm. It collapsed in and got buried. We got to go into one of those cellars and begin to excavate things. And we were pulling up huge 
shards of pottery. I, re- I have a picture of uh, Pastor Mike pulling up like half of a wine jug. I got to find a completely intact serving bowl that had not seen the light of day for over 2,000 years. You get to, I mean, there's just something ridiculous about pulling that out of the ground and knowing that the last person and then who do you get to keep that no no oh. oh no all of those things are historical they they are put into their their museums or they're collected and there's a lot of those things but no you don't get to keep them but it's still pretty amazing to get to experience that yeah that would be so epic man that's that's amazing yeah. so uh where was i gonna go from here So I'm thinking of, let me see your map. Sure. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, so as we see that you know, Jesus went from town to town, mm-hmm. and it was you know, a walk, yep. you know, a day's walk, a day's, a, what do you say? A day's walk of uh-huh. distance, Yeah. right? Um, and things like that. Um, there's this, I remember when you went, you were posting things on Facebook yeah. and whatnot about you know, this place and that place. And I remember you went to one that was called like the something of Qumran. The caves of Qumran. Caves yeah. of Qumran. So, I mean, I don't know where that is yeah. geographically, but would you, yeah. I mean, I just found it fascinating. Like, tell me about the history of that place and how is that relate even to the scriptures oh, or the manuscripts that we have nowadays? That's awesome. Great question. So uh, the Dead Sea is about halfway down, you know, right next to Jerusalem, just a little bit south of that to the right is the Dead Sea. And again, this is desert. There's not a whole lot around it. Even the water itself, you can't drink it because you would die because of the amount of salt content. And so for the most part, there weren't a lot of people that lived down there. But about, I think maybe 80 years ago at this point, there were some shepherd boys that were kind of tending their goats. You see goats all over the place. Some shepherd boys were tending their goats, and as boys tend to do, they like to throw rocks, and there were caves that dot the hillside. There's caves everywhere in Israel. So they saw those caves, and they had rocks, and as boys are wont to do, they threw rocks into the caves, and one particular rock went in there, and they heard shattering pottery. So, of course, they had to go explore, and they found these old, crusty, crumbly uh, texts or, or scrolls. They didn't know what they were, but they went and told an adult because it could be worth some money, And it turns out that what they had found were what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the most ancient and well-preserved texts that we have. And what it did is take our Old Testament, from, for instance. When you are a scholar, you want to get—we we don't have any of the original manuscripts of any of the books of the Bible because they were written on papyrus or they were more often written on scrolls that would— get aged and fall apart and they were as they're being used and open up they fall apart so people would copy them there were entire jobs careers where somebody would simply copy the, the manuscripts to make sure that they're as perfect as possible but of course there's always copyist error that creeps in so a theologian or a scholar's job is to see just how close to the original manuscript you can get because the closer you get the less copyist errors could creep in Up to that point, I believe that the closest we got to Old Testament texts were somewhere around uh, 1,500 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of copyist errors that could creep in. Well, these boys and what they found shortened the amount. They lopped a thousand years off of the distance between the original text and our most ancient text. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls provide us a thousand years, get us a thousand years closer to the original. And you know what they found? Is that there was almost zero discrepancy in anything. There was less than 0.5%. That's less than one half of a percent of copyist errors. And of the errors that did creep in over those thousand years between when the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied and the ones that we have today, there wasn't a single bit of theology that had been tweaked or changed because of those copyist errors. And that, for me, as a pastor who wants to be able to trust the Bible that I hold in my hands, that gives me great confidence. And that's something that just happened in the last 60 to 80 years. So this is a relatively new find, but it's huge. It, it had seismic impact on our ability to trust the Bible that we hold. Yeah, that's incredible. And I I'm not surprised by, again, you know, I have this emoji that's skeptical. 
um, and I give a lot of grace and I don't know maybe voice to skeptics because I feel like I want to move you closer to inspired and holy and divine <laughs> but it, it, you know it makes a lot of sense for people to be skeptical of like I mean even me you know wow you found that 60 to 40 years ago that and it has so much history and it validates scripture so much. It's like, no, man, somebody made it up, right? Like somebody went in that cave and like, I'm going to hide some manuscript. And I know some people think like that, but um, I guess what I love is that as a pastor, you know, like you're saying, it gives you more confidence mm -hmm. into the validity of, of the scripture. Yeah. Uh, so that's amazing. And I guess another question I have in, in terms of like, scripture and the historicity of the bible and jerusalem and mm -hmm. you know israel is what about other manuscripts you know what about because I, I i don't know a lot but you know i know i've read that there's you know the gospel of mary and yeah. the gospel like all of all these other guys um yeah. have they found where those found also in this set of manuscripts that they found in Qumran? have they found this other man like Tell me a little bit what, sure. of what you know about other manuscripts yeah. that are not in the Bible. Great question. So uh, when, and I am not a Bible scholar, so I know that, um, you know, there's some phenomenal books that will do a much, much better job of explaining what I'm about to try to explain. Uh, the best one that I would recommend is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gold Gordon Fee. Bar none, the best book on how to read scripture and how we got to, to have the scriptures that we have in our hands. They didn't just fall out of heaven, bound in fake leather with Jesus's words underlined and in, in English. There's a long process that's taken it from when Jesus spoke it, uh, people heard it, they copied it down, or when Paul spoke it and you know, John Mark wrote it down for him and so that it could be passed on. There's a lot of, of things that have happened in between and it helps lay that out. But here's the reason why the books of the Bible that we have in the Bible are included in them and books like, uh, the, whether it's the Gospel of Mary or, or any other number of, um, of these so-called Gospels don't make it in. The reason is because the ones that we have were agreed upon by the earliest believers, by the early church. They were taken as scripture from the very beginning. They were passed around as scripture. Even when Paul was writing his letters, what we call the epistles, to people in the churches, they were already treated as scripture. Um, and so because of that, we, 300 years later, when they began to have a, hey, we need to nail down once and for all, is the Gospel of Thomas even something we're going to listen to? They were trying to discern which books of the Bible would be included and which ones wouldn't. They chose the ones that had been accepted as Scripture that they knew they could point to somebody and say, this is the person who wrote it. We know who that person is. It's been accepted as being written by that person. And sure, there are people who will disagree. Well, I don't know that that person actually wrote it. It may have been. But the vast majority of people, and for the last 2,000 years, it's been accepted as that. But then you get something like the Gospel of Thomas. There is a long list, uh, there, there's actually a tendency of people in the Middle East, when they want to write something and they want people to pay attention to it, they would simply attribute it to somebody famous. We have a lot of that where, like, if you pretend that you're someone famous and you write something, it might get published or it might, and people might click on it and watch your video and all that kind of stuff. Same thing happened back then. They would write a gospel, they would write their own perspectives, they would write their own take on Jesus to kind of support their theological perspectives, and then they would attribute it to Thomas or to Mary or to somebody else. And we're talking 100 or 200 years after Jesus. So we already have a list of books that have been accepted because they've been accepted from the very beginning. They've been passed around, they've been prayed over, they've been shared amongst believers. But then you have something new. Well, we're not going to accept that as the same weight as, because we don't even know who this came from. They are lying from the very beginning by suggesting that Thomas wrote it or uh, John the Baptist wrote it or Mary wrote it. Well, then at that point, we're probably not going to treat it as scripture. And that's what that council attempted to do was to discern which are the ones that have always been taken this way and which are the ones that have not. We're gonna disregard those. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if I could help people uh, relate to this a little more in our modern societies, my wife just got hacked. 
a few a few weeks ago and it wasn't even hacked because to me hacked is somebody accessed your account and your password and pretended to be you but there's another way that it's kind of like hacking but it's not necessarily which was somebody made an account put a picture and put the name of her and pretended to be her on a different account and was you know the goal of that they were trying to do was to scam people in you know back in our town in Mexico or friends that we have in Mexico and they were saying you know I'm traveling pretending to be my wife right I'm traveling can you send me some money because I ran out of money and you know Beto for whatever reason you know <laughs> I was I wasn't around and some people fell for it you know luckily not to the point that you know they got um, you know ripped or whatever because they later on you know like one of my friends asked me hey Beto it's like is Millie okay you know why is she sending me these messages I'm like Millie are you what's going on no I'm not sending messages oh somebody hacked my account and then it's like it's not my account it's somebody made an account on my behalf pretending to be me to take an advantage of somebody else right and and that's a great example well, of what was taking place but back in the first or second or even third century I mean these are hundreds of years after Jesus so wow That's incredible. Okay, so I was going to say something blasphemous, and I'm trying to remember what was. Uh, but your, your mind is so divine, it's so difficult to think of something blasphemous. It's so difficult. I want to go there, but... Okay, I'll tell you something blasphemous. Tell me. Not proud of this. So when we were in Israel, one of the most special nights... Oh, we got the blasphemous music. One of the most special nights we had, <laughs> we were on the Sea of Galilee, and we decided we wanted to do baptisms there on the Sea of Galilee. And so we had a whole bunch of people that on our trip, some of whom had been baptized before others who had never been baptized. And we were doing baptisms. Myself, Pastor Mike, Pastor Rick were baptizing people. I actually have, have wanted to get re-baptized, kind of rededicated for a long time. But as a pastor, you always kind of feel a little bit like, can I do that? Because will people wonder if I even believed in Jesus before this? But I had a number of people on that particular trip that had... I had had the honor of baptizing. And so I got to ask them to baptize me in the Sea of Galilee. Super special. Well, as we're finishing up, Pastor Mike looks over at me and kind of gives me the eye. And I'm thinking what he's saying is, let's go tackle Pastor Rick, who's standing about 10 feet further out in the Sea of Galilee. That's what I think Pastor Mike is suggesting to me because I'm just reading his facial expression. So I turn around and I'm like hulking up, like I'm going to go and tackle him in the water. But what it turns out as as we get closer is Pastor Mike. Thankfully, I didn't dive at him and tackle him like I was about to because Pastor uh, Mike said, so Rick, why do you want to get baptized? And I realized what he was saying is, hey, do you want to go baptize Rick with me? Uh. And I was about to take him down. <laughs> you want to wrestle with me here? Well, it would have been a different baptism, all right. <laughs> wow. Okay, what an experience, man. And I guess I would love to end uh, the, you know, today's episode. Well, we're going to go from blasphemous to divine to wrap it up but first uh, one last thing I remember as you were posting about going to Israel and this was all pre-pandemic right um, yes. yes it was but you were posting about this temple mm -hmm. and you know I'm, I'm not super good with you know where things are and what it meant and whatnot. but I remember you were saying this is the place or this could have been the place where Jesus was brought out by Pontius Pilate yeah. and then people would have chanted crucify yeah. him crucify him tell me a little bit about I mean, just when you were saying that, yeah. I'm like, wow, I yeah. can't believe like that is the place. That those are the rocks. Well, so, so this is, again, you hold everything loosely. Archaeologists are still unearthing places. And so our best understanding of what we're seeing is constantly changing and morphing. So shortly before we went, there were some articles that were written that were suggesting that what we thought was the stone pavement, the steps where... Uh, you know, uh, Pontius Pilate would have brought Jesus out and said, I, I find no reason to condemn him, but you take him and crucify him. We thought we knew where that was, but they were suggesting maybe it's actually on the other side of the wall. Here's some archaeological things we've just discovered that would lead us to believe that. So we got to go and see it. And I'd never heard this, but Pastor Rick had done a ton of studying on this. And so he took us out there. We got to see it. Pastor Mike and I got to kind of walk through and explain it a little bit on a video. What's really fun is now we're almost three years removed from that trip. 
And archaeology has now almost confirmed that that is probably the place. And so now my guess is there's probably a ton of people crawling all over it. But back then, there was nobody there. And so it's really special to get to go and see that. And I would say if you get to go to Israel, you may choose to just go by yourself. And if so, it's always helpful to talk to somebody who's been before, get some of these tour books that can help you lay out a good uh, trajectory to go. If you get the opportunity, as most of you probably will when you do go, to go with a touring company, um, you will have people get to you know, see things that may be even different than I got to see. You might get to go places that we haven't gotten to go yet because they weren't even discovered then. There's, there's parts of the city of David down beneath this, the, the um, city of Jerusalem that they're still excavating. Really, really exciting stuff. And those are things that in the next three to five years are going to become more available for us to go in and look at. None of us have seen them yet. So it's really fun. Amazing. Amazing. So this is how we're going to end the episode. Uh-oh. We're going to go from blasphemous to divine. Hopefully as it pertains to why <laughs> pastors go to Israel. I don't know if that makes sense, but we'll try to make it work. Okay, so Eric Wayman, when you think of pastors going to Israel yes. and what Israel means yes. and the scriptures and yes. all of this, what would be the most blasphemous idea you can think of? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, um, if you have the opportunity to go to Israel because your pastor wants you to go there, it might be because he gets a free trip if you go and he brings enough of you. So that's the blasphemous thought. That's blasphemous right there. If your pastor wants you to experience Israel, the divine truth is we desperately want our church community, the people we're doing life with, to experience the word of God coming alive in front of them in the places that these stories actually took place. Remember, when we read scripture, we're not just reading mythology. We're not just reading something that people made up. We are reading the stories of people who were eyewitnesses who experienced these things. And when we are there in the places that it took place, it comes alive. And as a pastor, that's why I would want you to experience it. Ooh, so that's divine right there. So I forgot to say, there's three other emojis in between that you're going to have to come up with. <laughs> oh, really? So you went from the first to the last. To the last. But what I like, and this, this will help me to say right now, mm. I don't mean to use these emojis as a rating one through five. You know, like you have five stars, that's a divine. Right. And one star is blasphemous. Okay. I do it more as just, it's just a reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like when you're on Facebook and there's yeah. hearts and likes yeah. and no, things like that. It's just a reaction. So sure. what would be... Um, what are you skeptical of when it comes to you know, pastors going to Israel? Mm, what am I skeptical of? Boy, I'm skeptical that we know the best places to eat. I'm skeptical that when you eat meals in your hotel that you're getting the authentic thing. Let me tell you this. I love this last trip. I got to see a whole lot of things, but in a lot of ways, when you go on a big tour that shows you the entire place, it feels like you're a stone skipping over the surface. And I would say of this, uh, bar none, the best part of my trip the last time I went was the six hours I got after the rest of our team went back to the hotel. And I just decided, myself and one other guy, just decided to go wander the old city of Jerusalem. Just wandering around. We had no itinerary. We had no place to go. Sometimes rocks need to just stop and sink in and let the, the place flow over you. And when you do that, you start realizing that you're missing out on a whole lot of things when you just want to see everything. Wow, you're moving. You're actually moving up my my um, emoji reactions because the next one there's two more uh -oh. we're gonna discover Gee, right now um, next one is inspired okay okay so what's something inspiring or inspired about pastors going to israel oh man i got nothing I'm blanking other than Rick Olson <laughs> getting getting to go with Rick Olson and Mike Decker was inspiring for me and if you mm. can go with somebody 
who has experienced that place, if you can go with somebody who has a lot of um, of themselves invested in it, like both pastors Rick and Pastor Mike did, it's worth it. Awesome. And we're doing this because we want to invite you to our next trip to Israel. Come on. <laughs> we're actually planning one for next year. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Okay, there you go. So, God already, willing, God all- willing, we're going to be doing it. Okay, so we got it working already. Right. So, last one Uh-oh. would be, uh, what's the next one? Holy. Ooh. Holy. So, what's something holy <laughs> in this episode and in this talk? All right, last thought. Here is what I have come to realize and probably what that guy who was dressed like Jesus in the Holy Sepulchre taught me. When you are standing in the most holy places on the planet, the places that everybody reads about, wants to go and visit, the person on your right and your left is far more holy in God's sight, far more valuable. We are God's holy ground. The places, they're interesting, but it's people who are truly holy and cherished by God. Oof, my friends. And that's why on today's episode, holy is actually divine. Okay. So thank you for listening, my friends. You know, you can go check out christianpodcast.com. We have more in-depth of our episodes. We have show notes and we have merchandise. That's amazing. We have hats and whatnot. So go check it out. But uh, Eric, what if people want to get to know more about who you are? Where can people find you? Even if they're interested maybe in in getting to know more about a trip to Israel. So there's nothing planned at this point because we're still trying to figure out how COVID is going to be affecting that trip. Uh, But if you want to get in touch with me, you want to find out about that. I'm a pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. So you just go to www.lighthousecommunity.com. You can email me, pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. And I'd love to give you the most up-to-date on what we're planning to do. I'm really, really praying that we're able to get back there in 2023. Nice. And maybe you're listening from Israel and you want to welcome this group of people when, when I was going to say when we go, but I don't know if I'm going, but oh, yes, you I are, would baby. love to go, man. So <laughs> we'll see you guys soon. We'll see you on the next one. Yeah, shalom. Shalom.